I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Agnes, welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Hello, Benjamin. How are you? Here we are. I'm really good. Thank you very much. How are things? Excellent. Today is an exciting day at Chatham House. It is. It's conference week. It's conference week. Conference week is upon us again. Our big uh, flagship, I was going to say fragrant, flagship (laughs) conference, the London Conference, which takes place every year in June in the London King's Cross St Pancras Hotel, a beautiful building. It is a beautiful building. Famous for the uh, Spice Girls music video. Wannabe, those stairs. Yes. And The agenda is looking wicked this year. It's looking really exciting. Um, As you are listening to this, we will be there. Um, it's a day and a half conference yep. um, with a dinner in the evening. This year it's Martin Rees giving the keynote speech. The Astronomer Royal. So I'm so excited. Very exciting. Space, Ben. Space. <laughs> the final frontier. Oh. Um, but what sessions are you excited about? Because we should say, sorry, you, you may not be there, you may not be here, bad luck, but you can watch the sessions um, on the Chatham House website afterwards. So we're flagging things that we think might be interesting. Exactly. Well, the agenda is amazing this year, I, would, I have to say. Well played to the conference's team. Yeah. The The overall theme is rethinking the rules-based international order, which is something that we do a lot of here at Chatham House. Um, but there's one really interesting session on the second day, on Friday, which is a roundtable on culture, identity politics and multiple belongings, which sounds like exactly the sort of journal article I would have read at uni, which um, involves... The novelist and political scientist Elif Shafak and Professor Matthew Goodwin, friend of the pod, Matthew Goodwin, who has been on Undercurrent several times. And uh, he's a visiting senior fellow at Chatham House and it's chaired by the head of Asia Pacific Programme, Champa Patel. And I think it should be really, really interesting. Excellent. How about you? Well, I'm looking forward to, this is on the second day as well, um, there's a great round table where those things on trustworthy artificial intelligence. What? Um, which is hosted by our erstwhile colleague Marjorie, um, who's Head of Innovation Partnerships um, at the Digital Society Initiative at Chatham House. And possessor of one of the best job titles in the business. Yeah, Head of Innovation <laughs> Partnerships. Say it again. Um, <laughs> because I think we're quite scared of artificial intelligence, so it's quite maybe good to hear some positive ones. I should also put in an embarrassing plug for the fact that I am doing a roundtable tomorrow morning. Clang. Public discourse in the media, facts and rules. Nice. Um, with James Ball, the journalist and author of the latest World Today cover story. Fab, fab, Are you going to come to mind, Ben? Um, you're not, are you? Because I'm not. Going to I'm going to go listen to Ali Shafak and uh, Matthew Goodwin. There but is no loyalty. If you could whatsoever. live tweet or something, that'd be, I can't that'd live be tweet. Grand. I'm sharing. Surely, just set up a little, yeah, an iPhone. Just, just film the whole thing. But no we... loyalty, listeners. <laughs> but this week, who have you spoken to? This week, I spoke to Melissa McEwen who works for our Energy, Environment and Resources Department here at Chatham House. And we were speaking about sustainable development in Colombia, which is a country we've never covered. Latin America. Latin America, indeed. I don't know if we've covered Latin America at all. I don't think we have. So we're... We're We're aware it's a gap, though. New territory, and we're trying to do more on Latin America. And Mm -hmm. we've got a really, really interesting interview, which is all about the kind of tension between the peace process in Colombia after 50 years of nearly sort of civil war, basically mm. armed conflict throughout that whole country, um, and the tension between resolving that conflict and yet also doing so in a way that protects the environment and, um, yeah, ensures that, like, the biodiversity and natural resources of Colombia are kind of protected. Um, and it's really interesting, really. Because I think often when people think of Colombia and potentially natural resources, there is... It's the drugs trade. So, you know, the idea that that there is all this other stuff going on and we should be talking about that, it's really interesting. Yeah, so it was was really fascinating. And it's based on an article that Melissa wrote for Latin America Bureau online and uh, the link's in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, it it was good stuff. But who did you speak to? I was lucky enough to speak to the lovely Tom Rains, who is head of the Europe programme here at Chatham House, for a roundup of what the European election results mean. Um, so how parties were doing whether there are any themes across across Europe and the UK because 
we're quite focused here on Brexit, but what are other people in Europe talking about? What does it mean that certain people got voted in in certain places or not? Well, let's have a listen. So I'm here with Tom Rains, the head of the Europe programme here at Chatham House, to talk about the European elections. I should probably also warn you that we have a special visitor in the studio, Bertie, who is mute but might wander around a little bit and is a dog. You should mention he's a dog. <laughs> he's a dog. Um, so Very well behaved dog thus far. He is. He is. But he might. You might hear a bit of pattering around the corner or a stretch or two. There we go. No, sorted. Brilliant, Tom. So, we've had these big elections, haven't we? Were they exciting? Uh, I, I suppose that <laughs> depends on what you wanted to happen. Uh, I think they were exciting. Um, I think, uh, and clearly more Europeans thought that they were interesting than previous elections because more turnout was up for mm-hmm. the first time. There's been this sort of steady decline since European elections began in uh, in 1979 that, that turnout would decline and, and that trend was reversed here, which is clearly good news. So that's positive. And uh, was that reversed across pretty much across the whole of Europe or was there bits where Turnout more... is something that's very uneven yeah. uh, in different places, but there were uh, and, and historically has been especially low in Central and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some quite significant improvements in turnout in in a few places, including Poland and others. So it's quite an uneven story still. Uh, and I think, like many things in the European elections, it, it sort of reflects what's going on nationally, probably more than it reflects something uh, at a sort of pan-European level. Um, but still, I think that we can all point to that as something which is generally positive, regardless of... of who you wanted to win the elections. And what would you say is the biggest sort of talking point from a European perspective of these? Because like, obviously there are so many different things going on. It's difficult to generalise, but what would be, you be, you think are the things that sort of were particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a few. I, I, I would try quite hard to resist a single narrative. It's difficult with, with 28 elections happening nationally to one I mean the European Parliament is unique as a uh, a transnational parliament um and it was created uh, and and many you know many of the the sort of more pro-europeans want it to be part of a, a genuine functioning pan-european democracy it has groupings of European parties that sit together and work together but it's also the product of 28 national elections and so in that sense it's quite hard to pull out a single um, sort of stream or narrative despite uh, people's determination to do so. I think probably the the clearest thing that happened which most people could see coming was that the the two main groupings in the parliament the sort of centre-right European People's Party and the centre-left uh, socialists and Democrats both lost seats. So in effect, the centre, if we you know, release the traditional centre-left, centre-right blocks, uh, lost seats to the extent that they on their own are no longer form a majority in the parliament. Um, so I suppose that's that sort of process of fragmentation that we've seen in different European democracies is, and you've actually seen in the European Parliament previously has sort of con- that trend has continued to the point where those two no longer have uh, sort of as a f- kind of grand coalition a control of the European Parliament in the way that they did before. Liberals did well, Greens did well and actually the Greens, particularly the German Greens are doing uh, incredibly well. In the last three opinion polls they, they have been uh, in Germany, the largest party ahead of the Christian Democrats, which has not been true at any time in their history. So that's quite remarkable. Um, then the populists, or certainly the right-wing national populists, uh, which got a lot of attention before the election and the sort of expectation that populist parties would do extremely well, that there was some sort of takeover of the European Parliament by Eurosceptical anti-European forces. I mean, it didn't ever... I mean, that... that that narrative was probably overblown to begin with, um, and I suppose that set very high expectations for for how populists might perform. Um, in fact, there wasn't any kind of widespread wave. There was some very uh, solid performances for right wing uh, populist parties. If you look at the the Lega winning in Italy, for example, although perhaps not as uh, not at quite the the highest expectations that some had. Uh, the Rassemblement National uh, Le Pen's party in France 
uh, winning ahead of Macron's party. Obviously, we had the Brexit party uh, here in the UK. So some right wing populists did rather well. And in some countries in in Denmark, in particularly in the Netherlands, they didn't perform quite at the level that people expected. So I think there was an entrenchment in quite a few places without there being some sort of populist wave. Um, and actually, even on, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion over the last few years about the decline of sort of centre-left European social democratic parties. Um, and although they're still really struggling in certain places like uh, uh, the social democrats in Germany, uh, in fact, the Dutch Labour Party, which had done pretty terribly in recent elections, ended up winning in the Netherlands. Uh, you had uh, uh, the uh, socialists in Spain winning the elections there too. So it's really quite a mixed picture. It's a fragmented parliament. Um, it probably means that that in some areas it will be perhaps more difficult to find sort of stable working majorities, but it might also you know, require people to work in slightly different ways than they did before. Because, I mean, I think often in, from a British perspective, the European elections are sometimes um, an excuse for people to vote for single-issue parties that they wouldn't vote for in a national election. Is that is that sort of a similar across Europe? You know, does that allow for single-issue parties like the Greens, potentially, or, you know, more populist parties to get votes that they wouldn't otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the, the, the view is that most uh, citizens tend to treat, most voters tend to treat EU elections as a sort of second order election. And so that that gives people sometimes a degree of freedom to punish incumbents or vote for, uh, as you mentioned, single issue parties or alternative parties that they may be less willing to give their vote to in an election that they think might have greater consequence so there's probably greater propensity for people to protest vote etc um i think that is true uh, and i think that's partly explains what we can talk a bit more about the the uk later but i think that partly explains what's happened as dramatically as it did in the in the uk case um and that's been true for a while but i don't think actually that some of these parties are single issue parties if you don't think that the 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 greens can can fairly be described as a single issue party certainly the german greens have been have been a stable force in german politics for 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 decades so um it's not quite as uh as simple as that but i do think that there is an element of protest anti-incumbency and a freedom that people have and some in some places like in the uk the, the election system makes it easier to vote for in european elections to vote for a party and know a smaller party and know that your vote's likely to to make more of a difference than in a first past the post system yeah and i mean on that note on the the green sort of sway because the greens did really remarkably well across europe you know quite broadly as well not just in in certain countries and do you think that is the environmentalist message and is that the young people voting is that older people voting you know is the sort of the rise of the climate protests tying in with that too i don't know or is it separate and just politics well there's still there's still although they did well in several countries there's still a slightly kind of northern european phenomenon to an extent uh, the 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 greens and as I, as I say, they have. I think if you take the the German Greens, which are probably a more, you know, it's a slightly contested term, but more centrist party in some ways, and at a local and regional level, they've been uh, in coalition with the Christian Democrats, and they've been in 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 uh, coalition with the Social Democrats. So um, I think that's slightly different, probably, to the Greens in the UK, for example, which are probably a slightly more radical view of our economic and social settlement in the UK um, and perhaps the, the UK Greens are closest to some of the Nordic Greens. So I think there's probably a bit of interesting um, variety within the Green um, political family itself and of course in the UK um, the Scottish National Party actually sit with the, the Green grouping in, in the European Parliament and in a way they're probably perhaps closer to the, to the centrist German Green tradition with a focus on sustainability. Um, so I think the and in terms of the role of climate, I mean I think in general um, it's hard to it's hard to generalize about what's motivating voters across all those different things. But I think what we're seeing is a much wider uh, salience given to green issues, and we've seen that manifested in lots of different ways. And this is perhaps is a sort of 
electoral consequence of that that we've seen through street movements and school protests and just a, a higher degree of visibility across a lot of media and, and attention that's given to that. And I, you've also seen the response of that in, in mainstream parties. You saw that actually in, in lots of the debates between the uh, the lead candidates to be president of the European Commission, which not all Europeans tuned in for, but... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I must admit, I missed it. You didn't, which were is... They, were they um there was there were some interesting parts to them um but i think most most of those candidates get tried to put themselves forward as as having fairly strong green credentials and and uh they were and scar keller who's the uh, the green spitzen candidate um the leader of the greens in the european parliament um was sort of the strongest and has obviously clear credentials on that but all of the, all of the um uh, the candidates were were putting forward a strong green message. So in a way, it's something that that I think that there's a degree of at least consensus about the importance of that, if not agreement on on the steps to take, the urgency and the level of ambition. So before we get onto the UK, what does the breakdown of the to the European Parliament look like now? Then I mean, has it how has it changed? So the largest party is still the European People's Party, which is the centre-right group. Uh, and then the second largest is still the centre-left bloc, the Party of European Socialists. And then you have actually as the third largest group, the the Liberals, uh, who had a good campaign and have been strengthened slightly by um, uh, the success of the Liberals in France, to whom the, the En Marche were... Uh, What's the right word? They had a sort of tie up an alliance before the election without actually formally joining uh, the Liberals, which is slightly confusing. And I think basically because uh, there were probably uh, ambitions uh, from from Macron's party to sort of shake up parliamentary groupings at the European level in the way that he's shaken up. Uh, politics in France and I think that he's he's basically not quite in a position to be strong enough the liberals aren't quite big enough to do that but they're the third largest group and then after that is the um the greens the uh, which mentioned the European free alliance and then is Salvini's sort of new populist grouping and there's there's a couple of other smaller um slightly harder to to to, to place groups says so the european conservatives and reformists the ecr which is the old group that the uk conservative party used to be part of and then the uh, europe of freedom and direct democracy which includes the brexit party but also the five star movement so there's lots of different groups lots of different blocks and actually it's interesting because there's sort of slightly different characters of uh conservatism in different parts of europe which are manifested in different ways beyond the sort of main centre-right block. Um, why does this matter? Uh, in the short term, it matters partly because uh, the European Parliament will be instrumental in selecting um, the president of the European Commission and playing a role in the sort of general horse trading for the top positions in in Europe. And, and how how is that person chosen? What is the process? As so, sort of- yeah, in short, well, it's, it, it, it's slightly contested. So, uh, the process is supposed to be that they, the candidate is nominated by the European Council, so by the the, the heads of government of member states, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're supposed to get the consent of the European Parliament, having taken account of the results of the European election. Right. Slightly vague phrase. In 2014, um, the European uh, Parliament grouping sort of took it upon themselves to interpret how this process should work, and in what you could either describe as a sort of semi-constitutional power grab or a, a an effort to bring to sort of democratize the process uh, wanted to pick their own candidates to be president of the European Commission and they uh, the so-called Spitzen candidaten process so the lead candidate um, they would select a candidate who should who they felt should become president of the European Commission if their uh, party got the largest number of seats in the elections, which is what happened in 2014. The EPP got the largest number of seats. They had already, well before the elections at their own party congress, chosen Jean-Claude Juncker to be the candidate. And despite David Cameron's best efforts to resist, uh, he ended up being selected. Um, That process uh, is is more contested this time around, partly because um, the European Council 
I think there was there was some they didn't really like that decision being taken away from them to an extent and they wanted greater control of the process and particularly Emmanuel Macron for example has expressed how much he he doesn't like the process as formulated but I think to some extent the process itself has lost some legitimacy or certainly the direct process that that given that no party has won uh, you know much more than a quarter of the seats in the European Parliament it is hard to sort of say that that person deserves by virtue of those results to sort of uh, take up the role of president of the commission in the way that a, a prime minister in 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 Westminster leading le- you know enjoying the the confidence of the largest party uh, could do so yeah so it's it's obviously it's a, it's a different system but at the moment there is a sort of back and forth there are the lead candidates from from the two large parties so that's for the European People's Party that is Manfred Weber who's a uh, uh, from Bavaria is a German uh, Christian democrat from the CSU who is a, a long-term figure in the European Parliament, um, but doesn't? There's not massive enthusiasm for him in many other quarters. Partly also because he doesn't have a great deal of, uh, or any, in fact, executive experience. Um, for uh, the centre-left bloc, there's Franz Timmermans, who's been vice president of the European Commission, who actually had a very good election campaign, certainly in the Netherlands, um, leading the the Dutch Labour Party. Um, to the success that it had uh, and obviously has a fair bit of experience in the commission but has also made some enemies particularly in Poland and Hungary because he's been leading this process of uh, of, of challenging um, rule of law issues in Poland and Hungary um, and then the liberals have sort of semi-objected to this process but not totally so they've said we, we think this process is imperfect so we're going to put forward a slate of candidates so they put forward seven people um, and including Margrethe Vestager who is the uh, who's the Danish former competition commissioner who is seen as sort of very capable leading leading figure who could yet still kind of come through as a compromise candidate so nobody because the the parliament basically has become more fragmented nobody has a clear sort of obvious mandate to say they must be the person so we'll have an an upcoming european council later in june and they will um either by consensus or by qualified majority uh nominate a candidate and then it will be up up to the parliament to either approve or disapprove that person. I think. I mean, why would you get disproved? I mean, you know, what what are the reasons that you could not get through at that point? Well, it may be that the that the parliament itself wants to retain control yeah. of the process. So, if the council nominates somebody who wasn't a Spitzenkandidat and hasn't been chosen by any of the the party groupings, then they might say, "Well, no, we want we want one of the people who've been part of this process." Uh, to be approved, so it might it, it might be that that's yeah. I mean, some some people have been suggested who are slightly outside this process, uh, including Michel Barnier, who's obviously been leading the the Brexit process. Um, although his he has in recent days offered his support to Manfred Weber, um, and he's also from the from the centre right EPP. Um, so I I suspect um, it's hard to know exactly who come like that. I have a feeling that 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 Weber isn't going to get selected, but might get another job. There's there's always sort of a degree of of uh, of. There are of, quite a few senior positions, aren't there? Really. There are several positions, some of which are explicitly or non-explicitly tied together. So it's almost it's partly about finding a balanced package. I think there's um, there's some desire to to have. Um, you know, a, a good regional balance, perhaps to have representation at the top of the European Commission from one of the member states that joined more recently. Um, there is a desire to have a better gender balance at the top of the European Union institutions, which has not been present uh, at all. It's incredibly um, male, isn't it? It is uh, currently, but I think that, that that's the sort of thing that hopefully will um Will, will change with this process but there's there's sort of quite a few different considerations you've got political balance regional balance uh, sort of gender and representation questions as well as reflecting the sort of fragmented political balance and this slight tug of war between the council and the parliament and so there'll probably be a very long discussion into the night in which some kind of compromise candidate comes forward so um and it'll be interesting actually to see how much uh you know uh, macron wants to fight uh, for you know 
commission a commission president that he's happy and comfortable with relative to some other roles and positions that he might think are, are more important and how much they're all tied together for example the uh, the presidency of the European Central Bank we should probably talk about the UK so I feel like lots of people have uh, claimed these elections as a win and lots of people have claimed them as a catastrophic loss yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> you can sort of make what victory, you want I, from I, I them, thought, really. I thought, I thought you performed very well in the European election. Thank you so much. Thought you Thank had a you, good, Tom. A good European election. Thanks. Um, it's true. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, that Labour and the Conservatives had very bad European elections, so that's a sort of not really contested point. Um, yes, the Brexit party did very well. They did very well in the context of not being a party, you know, uh, three months ago. So they came from very little to perform very well. Um, I think that should be seen in the context of, you know, in 2014 European elections, the last last ones we had, UKIP were the largest party, got 28% of the vote. So, you know, they've ended up sort of 4%-ish higher with UKIP still on the ballot paper getting um, getting some votes as well but it's not a kind of dramatic turnaround we know that there is a, a sort of large proportion of the public who are going to vote for the Brexit party, the Lib Dems did extremely well, the Greens did very well basically anyone who had a clear message about Brexit or a clear message in general performed very well um, and uh, Labour and the Conservatives who've been struggling to develop any um, sustainable compromise within their own parties on, on Brexit um, were punished. But to, to, to quite a sort of staggering extent, it's obviously different in a European election, but June 2017 general election, 80% uh, of the public voted for one of the two main parties. This time it was less than a quarter. Uh, so even... Acknowledging that the main parties, the two main parties, have generally done slightly worse in European elections or had a less dominant share of the vote, they almost got they got nearly fifty percent last time. So this was a pretty terrible performance for both of them. And I guess each of them faces a sort of central political quandary for the Conservatives. It's how do we uh, face off the challenge of the kind of drumbeat for No Deal, um, which the Brexit Party represents in the context of a leadership election and for Labour are we willing to pay the political cost of becoming the party which explicitly supports remaining in a, via a second referendum uh, it's, it's been interesting actually because I, I you know for so long the expectation has been that, that Labour needs to sort of decisively clarify its position and it's and even, you know, a few weeks after the election, it, it hasn't really decisively done so. It seemed to shift and then that shift seemed to sort of slightly halt and get stuck. And, you know, there's obvious divisions right at the top in, in, in the shadow cabinet, uh, as well in as there being ways, a... that's been quite a sensible decision up until now, yeah. you could argue. You know, politically, that's been... It, it means that you can sort of appeal to everybody. It's only really at this point where it's hit... I think that's right. I thought that about the June 2017 election, that they would really struggle with a, um, a constructive ambiguity of their current Brexit message, which has basically been, we accept the result, we'll do this more nicely than the Conservatives will. Um, and uh, let's talk about all the other things that matter to people. Um, and they found that they couldn't really talk about the other things that matter to people in this election. Um, and it became an election, election about Brexit and an election about Brexit they did very poorly. Um, I think you're right, they haven't really paid a huge political cost up to this point. Because 2017, that, you know, that didn't affect them in the same way. No, not at all. Um, and they were, you know, it was a very successful strategy to make the, uh, make the election as much about, um, you know, other issues, austerity, inequality, public services, um, on which they have a, a very strong hand. Um but I think ultimately you have to you have to think also um, what does this do for the political fortunes of the Labour Party moving forwards, and what does this do for the country, which we are in a deep political bind with no solution which will please everyone, limited options, and we're running out of time. And at some some point, um, what you know. It's asking, uh, maybe it's asking too much, but but 
we need politicians who will be able to um, to look beyond the political benefits of their short-term political benefits of their decisions to think about the long-term welfare of the country. Well, Tom, on that note, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us and putting up with um, a slightly farty dog. <laughs> and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay, so now I'm joined by Melissa McEwen, who is a programme coordinator in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department at Chatham House. Thanks very much for joining us, Melissa. No problem. Great uh, to be here. We're here today to talk a bit about Colombia and sustainable development. Um, it's based on an article that Melissa has written um, for the Latin America Bureau online, which we will share the link to in the show notes, titled Colombia's Struggle for Sustainable Development Following the Peace Accords, Issues of Governance Come to the Fore. So I was wondering whether we could begin with a bit of an overview of Colombia's kind of geography and ecology. Absolutely. So I'll say, first of all, I'm pretty biased towards Colombia. I lived there for almost two years, oh, so I definitely recommend it as a destination to visit. <laughs> it is one of the most diverse countries in the world in terms of terrain. It literally has, you know, from high mountain plains and glaciers down to jungle, tropical rainforest, uh, Caribbean beaches, deserts, everything. But in terms of natural resources, it's obviously also very rich. Um, there are huge gold deposits, oil deposits, um, and also precious um, stones and metals, so things like emeralds I'm very well known for. And in terms of forest cover in particular, so if you kind of think of what Colombia roughly looks like, I'd say this is very generalised, but probably the whole bottom third is really densely forested and that's mm -hmm. where kind of it starts to bleed into the Amazon rainforest as well. Um, so that really plays into kind of the dynamics with the conflict as well. Could you tell us a bit about the political situation in Colombia? Obviously, in recent years, there's been quite a lot of mm. change. How did we get to where we are today? It's obviously a hugely complicated and controversial um, topic, but broadly speaking, the armed conflict um, with one with what was the largest armed group, the FARC, which stands for the Revol Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, started in the 60s. So it was it took place over 50 years plus. Mm. And it started as a social movement, basically. It had, you know, lots of kind of ideals associated with properly distributing land, for example. At, at the time, there was a lot of tension between private landowners and of people who, who didn't really have access to land. That over time escalated into something that is more complex and brought in revenue generation issues. And that's when the, the drug trade started being associated with it as well, um, as well as things like illegal mining. Um, so it became a much more convoluted issue that sort of moved away for, for many people, perhaps not for those who continue to support the group because there are people who, who do still believe in the ideals. But for many people, it sort of moved away from its initial conception. And then in 2016, this conflict kind of came to a pause or a halt. Mm -hmm. um, what, what happened in 2016 and what were the main sort of machinations around that? Yeah, so talks had been going on for ages um, in Havana in Cuba. Um, and finally, a peace accord, a draft peace accord was reached. Um, it was initially put to the Colombian people in a referendum mm -hmm. and it was actually turned down the first time by right. the people. I was there while it happened. It was very interesting to see. There was a kind of split between the way people voted in the cities and the countryside. Right. Yeah, just I suppose because people in the countryside were much more directly affected than people in the cities in general. And so what were the main reasons behind it being rejected? One of the, there are lots of issues, but one of the key issues was um, incorporation of the FARC as a political party um, and the associated details around whether they should be prosecuted for certain crimes and kind of the degree of that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of other things involved in terms of land rights and land restitution as well, which is a very sensitive issue as well. Okay, yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about FARC's kind of approach to land use and the governance of the land that they occupied during the conflict? Yeah. 
I think, first of all, I'd say it's really important to recognise that we say that Colombia reached a peace deal, but there are lots of armed groups in Colombia still. So it reached a peace deal with the biggest group. But there's also the ELN, which is the second biggest group. And then, unfortunately, hundreds of, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of other groups that have started basically without a kind of social cause behind them, much more kind of business focused really Mm -hmm. um but the FARC uh mainly occupied that bottom third that I was talking about of Colombia um and Colombia is a vast country I mean it's you know several times the size of France um and I suppose the state I'm not sure if they ever really had a hold of those areas in the first place because they were so densely forested and kind of hard to access Mm -hmm. So the FARC used that to their advantage in terms of, you know, they could hide in densely forested areas so that, you know, the government wouldn't be able to find them, the military wouldn't be able to find them. Um, And it also offered cover for some of the illegal crops that they were growing um, or illegal mining activities. So, you know, if you do it in a kind of concealed way, when when they send planes flying over, they might not be able to see that you're actually there. Yeah, you mentioned in your article that they there was also a sort of widespread sabotage of of infrastructure like pipelines. Mm, yeah. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that? There's obviously kind of a push and pull over these 50 plus years between the government and um, the FARC and different governments had different approaches, but particularly um, Alvaro Uribe's government, which was two governments before uh, the current president, um, took a very hard line. So there was a lot of kind of military activity mm-hmm. and sabotage of pipelines was one of the ways that the FARC used to not only rebel against the government, but also disrupt government revenue. And unfortunately, the one of the consequences of that was really serious environmental damage to the point where, you know, it would be in areas where you can't really seal a leak very easily or very quickly. So it would go on for months and months. And yeah, Yeah. and absolutely destroy like river systems, which then downstream affects communities. Um, So really, I I wouldn't underestimate, you know, the social and environmental impact of that. On the other hand, the FARC also had a kind of system of zoning land. um, And that was to do with them collecting essentially taxes from the people who lived in the territories that they covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that might have potentially been a bad thing for the locals who who lived there. I, I won't pretend to know the details of kind of the arrangements that they had. And there must have been a lot of oppression as well. But it did mean that big corporates or even smallholders or individuals couldn't willy-nilly go into the forest and cut down whatever they wanted or extract mm. resources, you know, other resources as well, wherever they wanted, because there was that that control. It just wasn't coming from the state. To an extent, would you say then that that, that, that was actually rather good for sort of sustainability in that sense, like the protection of, of the forests in that sense? Yeah, I mean... I, again, I don't want to underestimate the human cost of this conflict and say, you know, anything was... anything that came out of it was good because... Hundreds of thousands of people died and millions of people were displaced. And there was still a lot of environmental damage as we've touched on. Yeah. But equally, I think particularly in terms of forests, the fact that the kind of indirect effect of the conflict that meant that people couldn't access that area as easily mm. definitely preserved it. And one of the things I found in the research for my article was that the year the peace agreement was signed and what happened when it was signed was that... Um, FARC soldiers were moved to kind of areas, demobilization areas. So they were moved out of those previous territories that they controlled, or at least kind of centralized. So deforestation in the year that they signed the agreement rose 44% that year alone. And then the year after, and further 27% or thereabouts. So, you know, when you're thinking about an area that kind of touches on the Amazon rainforest, so when we say Amazon, we always think of Brazil, but mm. a huge part of the Amazon rainforest is also in Colombia. And to think that suddenly deforestation has gone up by that rate is really, really alarming. And what's driving that? What are the incentives for people to be cutting down these forests? So I, there are many actors. And I think one of the issues is that 
the state hasn't been able to step in and replace some of the income that people living in those previously FARC-controlled territories were involved in. That's not to say that everyone was involved in coca farming. That's not true. But it was the lifeblood of a lot of people. And when you suddenly are told that you can't do that anymore, and there's a a crop substitution programme that's going on at the moment, uh, which tens of thousands of families have signed up to but then there isn't kind of a a adequate replacement for that for many reasons so for example the government suggests changing to cocoa but that's actually a fraction of the price so it's very hard for those farmers to sustain their families through legal means and one of the other alternatives is cattle ranching which as you probably all know is very unsustainable Um, but it does have a quicker return Mm -hmm. and it does mean that you need kind of less investment in the beginning to get going. So that's one of the reasons you could clear forest in order to ranch cattle. Another reason is simply to sell the timber. It's very like high value hardwood tropical rainforest timber, the kind of stuff that, you know, ends up in beautiful furniture, unfortunately, sometimes illegally, um, which is something that we investigate through another project we do here at Chatham House on forest governance and the indicators of illegal logging, if you're interested Mm. in checking that out. Um, Then you also have, you know, companies going in. Suddenly they can access these areas. These areas haven't necessarily been zoned as protected areas yet, or maybe they have, but it's very hard to monitor what's Mm. going on there. And you have the criminal gangs who essentially are also operating as businesses. So they might undertake business activities and, you know, in order to fund their operation. And has the government in Colombia recognised that this is a problem? Is it even on their radar as something that needs to be addressed? It is, but, and this is my opinion and it might be controversial, I don't think it's on their radar enough. So there was an event here at Chatham House, I think around a month ago, with um, the president's right-hand man essentially in charge of implementing the peace deal Mm -hmm. during his presidency and I did ask him this question and he pointed to kind of land land use um, and community land use uh, plans for the future in terms of you know how to rehabilitate land how to get communities involved in kind of sustainable economic activities on that land Um, and he said you know environment is a part of that it's a pillar that we incorporate within that Um, which I I do believe, but I think there's issues with implementation. There's, you know, really an issue with budget here and and human resources as well. And I also, I don't think the environment alone is being emphasised enough. I do understand why, because I think the social problem is huge. Um, I do understand why that's a first priority. You know, I wouldn't, (laughs) it would be very hard to judge that. And there are also massive external pressures on Colombia as well at the moment, like the Venezuela crisis. So I was back there in uh, March this year. Um, And even since December, which is the time I'd been before, I noticed there were Venezuelan families camping like in the islands on roads, kind of as you cross the road, a, a massive number, like a massive increase. So dealing with a massive influx of of refugees, um, dealing with the US also cutting aid, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with, you know, having to rehabilitate ex-FARC combatants, having to provide new livelihoods to people who, you know, might have to change their original economic activities. There's so many issues going on at the moment, but I just think the environment is one that is not only important for Colombia because it's a beautiful, beautiful country. I mean, absolutely stunning. And I think if if they want to be sustainable long term, ecotourism and activities like that really should be a part of the future. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to attract tourism if if the nature isn't really there anymore. Yeah. And also just in terms of climate change. I mean, you know, we're all in, interconnected now, whether we like it or not. Um, and to lose, you know, a significant portion of the lungs of the world would be really devastating. We've mentioned a couple of times uh, the drug trade and the farming of coca in particular mm. in Colombia. And I guess um, many people who don't know much about Colombia, their impression of it may be coloured by uh, Narcos yeah. or, you know, Pablo Escobar and all of these, this kind of idea of this uh, of this cocaine trafficking. Could you tell us a bit about the scale of that illicit industry? 
It's really like Colombia, Peru, Bolivia at the moment, and it sort of bounces around the three, which is the top producer of coca. Unfortunately, since the peace deal was signed, coca cultivation has actually increased, really? which, yeah, mm. which is surprising when you hear it at first, but actually then when you think that, you know, the FARC was removed from its territories and a lot of other criminal groups have assumed those lands and possibly upped production because there isn't really uh, anything stopping them. Um, I think that's really an explanation for what's happening at the moment. Um, and the government has tried to tackle this in various ways. In the past, um, they had a programme of spraying crops with um, pesticides and that was banned with the previous government because it was found that there, there might be a correlation with health defects um, in people who live in the surrounding areas. Um, and it didn't really make that much of a dent, to be frank, in kind of the level of production. Um, since the peace deal, uh, a programme for crop substitution was implemented instead. And so families were basically asked, like, you know, voluntarily sign up to this program. We won't do anything to you. Like, we won't take any legal action. Um, we will give you a payment in order to, like, enable you to do this. And um, we're also going to give you technical assistance so that you can transfer to another legal crop. So 99,000 um, families enrolled on the program. Um, and 94% of those families have complied with the terms. But according to reports, uh, only, uh, well, at least 40,000 of them haven't received any payments from the government. So it becomes really difficult mm. at that stage, um, not only financially for them, but also in terms of trust. Like, why would you, you know, sign up and voluntarily go through this? You, you know, you might really want to have a legal livelihood, but if it isn't going to be backed up with the proper support afterwards, then how can you possibly do that? Um, and the UN is actually involved in monitoring that program. Um, and because, as I mentioned, you know, we say peace deal, but there's still so many armed groups. They've actually been prevented on numerous occasions from even monitoring the areas because there's still so much violence. So when you think that it's at that scale, scale it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, really the gravity of the problem. Um, and... So last year, I think, gosh, I hope I'm right with that. Um, fairly recently, a new president was elected, Ivan Duque, and he is again more hardline. Uh, so he's kind of on the in the school of Uribe. Um, so he said that he's going to go back to spraying crops, effectively. So we'll see if that has an impact on the level of production. So one policy that you mention has kind of been enacted by the Colombian government since the peace accords in 2016 are these uh, ZIDRES, these economic zones, to help alleviate poverty. Um, mm. Could you tell us a bit more about those and, and what impact have they had on the environment? So these are rural agricultural development zones. Only one or two has been, you know, formally inaugurated up to now, but the government has done a kind of scoping study and produced a map of where they think they should be. And they've done that based on um, areas of land which they consider were not inhabited before um, and which are kind of very inaccessible um, and require higher investment in order to develop agricultural land, but that also have the potential for agriculture. So the idea is that this ties into... Um, because one of the aims of the peace deal is to ensure sustainable economic development and to improve rural livelihoods for the poor. So in theory, it sounds great. They have taken into account, you know, protected zones um, and nature reserves. And so, you know, it avoids all those areas. But there, as with kind of everything with this issue, there is controversy around um, kind of the initial statement that the government has made that this land didn't belong to anyone else mm, before. Right. Um, so millions of people were displaced during the conflict. And there are people who come from rural areas where there wasn't formal paperwork before. And so they claim, no, actually, I did used to inhabit this land. I did used to work this land. And so it shouldn't go into, you know, government possession. I should be given it back. So that's one of the issues. The other environmental, potential environmental issue is that although these areas, if you look at, if you look them up online, it'll be kind of 
you know, slightly mountainous areas that have essentially what looks like to us a bit of grass. Right. Uh, so it's not what you think of as a kind of sensitive ecosystem. Um, but they are actually called high plains um, sensitive ecosystems. Um, and there's there's an NGO that I reference in my article, which has done a study on comparing another government uh, survey which looked at what land was appropriate for palm oil cultivation and they've kind of overlaid it over this map that the government has produced for this and found that there's like huge areas where they overlap right so there's concern that this will just turn into like large palm oil monocultures i would say like our you know, I think everyone's initial reaction when you hear palm oil is like, oh, that's bad because uh-huh. it's associated yeah. with deforestation, right? In those areas, there isn't really that much forest. And so the palm oil growers of Colombia have signed an agreement with the government saying that they won't cause deforestation. But there's still the issue of like, is it a sensitive ecosystem? Will, you know, implementing large monocultures affect other things that are reliant on that very sensitive balance? Do you think that there always has to be this trade-off between incentives around peace and stabilizing society and also being kind of environmentally sustainable because it seems to be the that you can't have one without the other in Colombia at the moment but does that always have to be the case do you think there are ways that you can integrate environmental concerns a lot earlier in the process I think there are um I think it requires more effort um because you know finance mechanisms for example are lagging mm-hmm. Um, And I think, you know, unfortunately, we live in a reality where that is probably one of the fundamentals that you need in order to get anything off the ground for a sustained period and at scale. Um, But I also think that, you know, understandably, people's focus is elsewhere and therefore it isn't brought into the conversations early enough. And that's why the environment ends up being as a kind of nice to have add on Mm. at the end. But I think if it were brought into conversations much earlier um, and, you know, conversations were had with institutions that provide finance, um, because climate financing is something that has started. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's, you know, not as prevalent, but it does exist. There is precedent. Um, So getting those stakeholders involved really early on, I think that way, yeah, there would be, you know, a future for it to be incorporated at the same time as, as conflict resolution talks. Melissa McEwen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, that's that for this episode. I know we've plugged the London conference today, but it hasn't been all fun and games, has it been? Absolutely. We've been spending the last two days here at the London conference interviewing the most interesting speakers we can find and we will be sharing those interviews with you in forthcoming Undercurrents episodes. So bear with us on your podcast feed, keep subscribed, tell your friends to subscribe and uh, you never know, hopefully we might cover a topic that you are interested in. And uh, it's a great opportunity because so many people fly in from all over the world for the London Conference so we can grab people that normally we can't speak to. Exactly. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Magnus Frimpson, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.